Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. Usually, episodes of this show are organized around one big question. Often, it's one pain point, i.e. a common problem that people might have. Anxiety, depression, fighting too much with the people in your life, etc., etc. Sometimes, though, we book a guest who is just too interesting for one clear focus. Or, alternatively, I'm too undisciplined to pick a subject and stick with it. Whatever the case, my guest today is Jonathan Haidt, a renowned social psychologist from New York University's Stern School of Business. I've been following his work for years, and I had a lot of things I wanted to discuss with him, including why it can make you happier to see your own irrationality and hypocrisy, the value of interacting with ideas you do not like, how to navigate social media sanely, how to get ahead at work and stay happy in the process, the upside of striving, the wisdom of the Stoics, and more. A little bit more about Jonathan. He has written many books, including The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth and Ancient Wisdom, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, and The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Since 2018, Jonathan has also been studying the contributions of social media to the decline of teen mental health and the rise of political dysfunction. He wrote a super viral article about that in The Atlantic not long ago, so we talk about that as well. And here's a little bit more on what we cover in the interview. We talk about Height's elephant and rider metaphor to explain how our minds operate. The rider is our conscious mind the kind of CEO mind of executive function. The elephant is our unconscious, which is mostly in control. How to use different techniques from hypnosis to Buddhist and Stoic practices to tame said elephant. Why we evolved to be hypocrites and how admitting our flaws can actually help us come out ahead. Buddhism as a counterpoint to our success-oriented culture and the deleterious effects of social media on democracy and young people's mental health. Just to say, some people might find Jonathan Haidt's views to be challenging, but that is part of the point. If you want to be smarter and stronger, you need to learn to engage with ideas you disagree with. Coming up on Wednesday, we're going to hear from a colleague and frequent friendly sparring partner of Jonathan Haidt's who will take a bit of a different tack. Her name is Professor Dolly Chug. She's been on this show before. So if you consume these episodes as a pair, that might be a, a nice way to make it all go down easy. One other note before we dive in here, just a quick heads up that this conversation includes mentions of self-harm and suicide. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, 
tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats, four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter, and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, They have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long-lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy Cats. Check them out. Jonathan Haidt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm a longtime fan, so it's great to finally have you on. There are so many places I could start, but let me just start here. In much of your work, there's a metaphor that you use that appears to have a lot of importance, and it's the elephant and the rider. Can you tell us what that metaphor is all about and why it's so important to you? So it came about as I was writing my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis. And I was teaching Psych 101 at the time at the University of Virginia. And I was trying to explain all of psychology in 24 lectures. And so I found that if I use metaphors, my students would understand it a lot better. And a major theme in psychology is dual process theories, that our brains are doing multiple things at the same time. And in some ways, the brain is more like a committee that doesn't necessarily get along very well with each other. And so I was looking for a metaphor. And the most common metaphor that a lot of 
cultures have used is a horse and rider. Plato had this metaphor in the Phaedrus that the charioteer is our reason, and the reason is trying to control these two horses, the noble passions and the base or stupid passions, and that's what a person is. And if the reason can get control, the charioteer can get control, then you've got a rational person. But at the same time, I was dating, I was in my 30s at the time, and I would just find myself like doing stupid things and like knowing that I was doing something stupid knowing that I was going to make the wrong decision. So I wanted something bigger than a horse. And so I I picked an elephant. Now, I have no idea whether I took the metaphor from Buddha. So Buddha said something like a man must or a sage must tame his mind as an elephant trainer trains an elephant, something like that. And I'd studied Buddhism in college a little bit. It was always sort of like just out, out of my consciousness. In any case, it just fits so well with Buddhism. And here's the thing. It fits so well with psychotherapists. Like, this is what I find from all the things in that book. Psychotherapists tell me this is the metaphor that most helps their clients. Oh, so I never said what it is. So the metaphor is that our mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict. And if you think about these parts as being like a small rider on top of a large elephant, and the small rider is our reason, and the large elephant is everything else, all the intuitive processes, the emotions, Sometime in the last million years, we evolved the ability to think in sequence, in language, in words, in logic, but we're not that good at it. You know, so it's weak. And if we get tired or drunk, we do it badly. But the automatic stuff, boy, that just goes on and on. And you can't stop that. So that's the metaphor. We're like a small rider saying, oh, we should go left, go right. But actually, the elephant does what it wants. And then it turns out the rider actually spends a lot of time just justifying whatever the elephant ended up doing. So why is this useful for people? So in the happiness hypothesis, what I did was I looked for all of the psychological claims that had been made across multiple millennia and multiple continents. It had to pass those two filters to be considered a great truth. And like the first one you find pretty much is the mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict. So St. Paul, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that ye cannot do the things ye would. And I would ask my students, you know, I'd show them that quote. I'd say, well, why don't you just do the things that you want to do? Like, what's the problem? You know what the right thing is to do, just do it. But we can't because we're not built that way. I shouldn't say we can't. What I should say is it's a struggle to do so. So that's what I was trying to capture with that metaphor of all the things I've written. Like that is probably one of the three things that should be recorded because that seems to be the stickiest thing I ever wrote. And I believe in the happiness hypothesis, you argue that the key to happiness or a key to happiness is training the elephant. It's getting the two in harmony. So you you should not think about it as though the rider is the real you and the elephant is this like difficult servant and you have to train it and make it do what you want. Like that's the wrong way to think about things. And people like me who are very, you know, cerebral, cognitive, rationalistic are prone to thinking that way, but that's the wrong way to think. A better way to think is that we are multiple, we are contradictory inside of ourselves and in our relationships, and that what you're striving for is just a a better kind of harmony, just getting things working together in a better way. What are the modalities for achieving said harmony? So I think introspection is an important tool. And of course, that's the foundation of Western philosophy, you know, over the temple at Delphi, know thyself. And Western philosophy from Plato and Aristotle on has been very much focused on sort of rational inquiry. So I think that's a part of it. But you have to have some idea of what you're trying to do. And then just 
all these different wisdom traditions give us different tools. So from the Buddhists, we get meditation. Well, Hindus before them, but especially in America, we know much more the Buddhist updates of that. So meditation is very much a way of training the elephant. The elephant is like an animal. You can't lecture it. But if you're training a dog, it learns by gradual reinforcement. And so meditation is a very powerful way to train the elephant gradually. But it's very hard. And especially for young people, I used to assign it in my Psych 101 class. I have a unit on self-improvement. And most people dropped it pretty quickly. It's very hard to stick with. But it works if you can stick with it. Self-hypnosis is another way to train the elephant. Cognitive behavioral therapy is an excellent way to basically catch yourself thinking these automatic erroneous thoughts and then correct them. So there are a lot of psychological techniques and a lot of the most powerful ones were actually discovered by either the Buddhists or the Stoics. And the Stoics are my new favorites because I think they really help you deal with the insanity of life in our country today. What specifically sticks out to you from the Stoics? We have the word Stoic and many people think to be Stoic is like, well, you know, you're being burned at the stake, but you don't scream or cry, you're tough, you don't show emotion. But that's not what the Stoics were about. What the Stoics were about was not letting the world trigger you, as it were, not letting the world set your negative emotions. A mature person has control of their perceptions. They see the world correctly. They don't let their mind run away. So one of the most important quotes, Epictetus, it is not things that disturb us, but are appraisals of them. So just anything you're hoping for, you don't get. And instead of instantly going down a path of, you know, damn it, I now you and why did I do that? Or why did they? you just reappraise things and where you are and you set yourself on a better course? I find that for life in a modern Western nation, I think the Stoics are really the best guides I've found to living a life of both equanimity and engagement. Of course, there's many kinds of Buddhism and some allow you to be very engaged in the world. But the Stoics, I mean, like Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of Rome, you know, Epictetus was a slave. You can be at any level in society and you can be engaged in society, but yet still learn to manage your emotions and appraisals and live a flourishing life. It's very possible that I'm not understanding this correctly because that happens a lot. But what I heard at least was that you're kind of using the rider to talk to yourself in a rational way that might in some way soothe the elephant. Yes, that's right. That's what CBT does. So Cognitive behavioral therapy is a technique which actually comes straight out of Stoic teachings. It's a technique where you identify the common patterns of distorted thought. So binary thinking, catastrophizing, overgeneralizing. There are things that we habitually do when driven by emotion that are distortions of thought. And it's easy to see this in others. It's easy to see them in your children. But CBT is a technique developed by Aaron Beck and a few others in the 1960s. Once you have the names of these thoughts, of these distortions, there's about 12 to 15 of them. And once you have the names of them, you can label them very quickly. When you see yourself catastrophizing over some little thing and you think, oh, all these terrible things are going to happen, even though they never have before. So just being able to label it and you can kind of laugh at yourself. And I got a greater interest in this from my friend Greg Lukianoff, my co-author on The Coddling of the American Mind, because Greg is prone to depression and he had a very serious one in 2007 and learned CBT afterwards. So that's kind of how I got into CBT in my 50s, I guess it was. So how do you use this stoic wisdom slash modern psychotherapeutic approach of CBT in the context of living in what seems at times to be an increasingly insane world in 2022? 
Well, so I'll tell you, when I started it in 2017, I think it was, you know, the first year of Donald Trump's presidency, and he's making saber-rattling noises about nuclear war with North Korea. And my wife is Korean-American, and she had a trip planned with my son. They were going to go with her father to Seoul and see relatives. And at the same time, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I think Trump actually wants to nuke North Korea. And I literally started reading up on prepping for, you know, what should we have in iodine tablets? You know, we live in New York City, and if Kim Jong-un could send a missile to New York, he'd do it. And I really started thinking about nuclear war, as I did when I was a child. And I forget what triggered it, but I just thought, I need to not just jump into my email first thing in the morning. I need to, like, set my mind. I didn't know at the time, but that's actually one of the major stoic practices, is just a morning routine and an evening routine. Read great thinkers, read meditations on life, start your day off with the proper mental frame and end it with the proper mental frame. So I started reading Marcus Aurelius. Actually, maybe you can tell me, first of all, how often have you talked about the Stoics on your show? Exactly one time prior to this. Oh my goodness. Okay, good. So listeners of your show, this won't just be a 17th repeat. But if your show is called 10% Happier, then I think you should be devoting at least 10% of your shows to the Stoics. That would be that would be my advice. Okay. <laughs> In fact, you know what? Hold on a sec. I have something for you. Okay. So as I read the Stoics, I find that actually the Stoics warned us about social media. Like they basically understood human nature, human cognition, and human relationships so well that they have all these amazing quotes. So here's from Marcus Aurelius. The things you think about determine the quality of your mind. Your soul takes on the color of your thoughts. Color it with a run of thoughts like these. Anywhere you can lead your life, you can lead a good one. Okay, so whatever you sort of immerse yourself in, that's what your mind becomes. So why would you spend any time on Twitter? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. You're just putting your head in the gutter and you're going to end up with a gutter mind. Here's an even more incredible one from Epictetus. He says, if your body was turned over to just anyone, you would doubtless take exception. Why aren't you ashamed that you've made your mind vulnerable to anyone who happens to criticize you so that it automatically becomes confused and upset? And once again, that's social media and in particular Twitter. Why would you put yourself in a place where total strangers who are using a fake name, who you have no history with, who don't matter, get to say terrible things about you and that can throw you off? So either get to the point of a Stoic or Buddhist who just doesn't care if people call you all kinds of names or don't spend your day on Twitter. So is your advice, no social media, if you want to be happy? No, it depends what you do for a living. I mean, so, you know, I'm a professor and a writer and and I follow politics. So there are advantages to checking in with Twitter now and then. It is an incredible tool to find things to read, to see what's going on. And because I'm writing about it, I have to actually have some sense of what's going on. But it really did kind of drive me crazy a couple of years ago. It really did throw me for a spin. And that's also related to you know why I've gotten into the Stoics later. So social media can be a tool that you use. And I think LinkedIn is a good example. LinkedIn, people use because it's useful. Very few people are addicted to it. It doesn't take over their lives. There are very few people who regret that they're on LinkedIn. Whereas Twitter, Instagram, you know, TikTok's a little different because it's mostly about creativity and humor and dancing, but there are now pockets of it that are really much more toxic than anything else out there. So I think it depends on who you are. It depends on what you do for a living, because there are some uses. And to the extent that you can use it as a tool to advance your ends, it can be quite useful. But the subset that are based on a business model where you are generating content for the platform, you're not the customer, the advertisers are the customers, and 
you are the product that is bringing other people on to be eyeballs for the customers. That business model tends to try to hook people. So I do think that no one under 16 should be on any form of social media where they post and wait for people to comment. That I think, and I've got a lot of evidence on this, social media, particularly Instagram, I do believe is the major cause or at least half of the cause of the teen mental health crisis. But for adults, I'm, I'm reluctant to tell adults what to do other than just be careful. You wrote a, a piece in The Atlantic recently that went massively viral. I read it. It was fantastic. And it is now the basis for a book you're working on. And my hope is to have you back on to talk about it in a full way at that time. But since we're on the subjects of social media, I do want to bring this up. Your article, if memory serves, really talked about the pernicious impact of social media on the functioning of democracy and as an itching powder on our divisions. And to bring this full circle, it really reminds me of the elephant and rider metaphor, which you use not only in The Happiness Hypothesis, but also in The Righteous Mind, a book you wrote about why good people are divided by politics and religion. And so given that many, if not all of us, will have spent time feeling hatred for the other tribe while glancing at our social media, I wonder if you could talk about the utility of the elephant and rider metaphor in this zone. Yeah. Okay, so let's start with the main idea of the Atlantic article. You know, I've been a professor since 1995, and I love being a professor. I love universities. I love students. But all of a sudden, something weird, just something changed in the fabric of the social universe in 2014 and hit campus first. This weird new morality, students claiming that they were being harmed by words and organizing to prosecute people because they used a word or they said something or they didn't say something. So it was, we couldn't understand what was happening. And there were demands for safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggressions. It came out of nowhere in 2014. It wasn't there in 2012. And then weird stuff started happening, not just on universities. Then it spread to many other institutions, journalism, the arts, politics. So our politics is now really weird in ways that I, I was struggling to understand. I've been struggling since 2014 to understand it. And I've just been thinking of the Babel story. We're divided. And when I went back and reread the actual text, it's just a very short little story in Genesis. The key line is that God says, when he sees the humans building this great tower to make a name for themselves and so that we will not be flooded again, because this is a little after Noah and the flood. And God says, let us go down and confound their language so that they may not understand one another. And boom, like that line, I said, wow, that's what's happening us. So I've been thinking about that for the last couple of years and really just, it's just been gnawing at me like, how did this happen? How are we in Babel? And if you imagine the descendants of Noah, like 10, 20 generations after the flood, they build this incredible city with a tower 50 stories tall or whatever. You'd feel such incredible awe and pride at doing that. And then boom, one day, one day out of nowhere, the tower's knocked down. Not only that, but you literally can't talk to the person next to you. Like, this tragedy has happened and you literally cannot understand the person next to you. That's what it's felt like to me in the 2010s. It wasn't like this in 2012, but by 2015, it was like this on campus. And by 2018, it was like this in journalism and the arts. And by 2020, it was like this almost everywhere. So that's what I was trying to explain. And the link to social media that I worked out as a social psychologist is everybody looks at social media and politics in terms of fake news, like, oh, it spreads misinformation. Okay, yeah. It does that, but I'm not interested in that. I'm a social psychologist. I'm interested in how it changes relationships. And what I argue in the essay is that the key thing to look at is the democratization of intimidation. Anyone can harass or intimidate anyone. 
anytime with no accountability, anonymously, no penalty for false accusations, no due process, nothing. This is why we all suddenly started walking on eggshells. You know, as a teacher, I used to be able to say provocative things and lead my class through difficult ideas. I don't dare do that now because if I offend anyone, they can report me, they can publicize it. All kinds of weird stuff happens. We have to all be walking on eggshells now. Not everywhere in the country, but in many institutions. So what I was focusing on was how is it that our institutions are getting so stupid? They keep doing these stupid, stupid things, even though they're full of smart people. And the basic argument was social media gave everybody like a little dart gun. You can harass or intimidate. You can accuse anyone of anything under a fake name if you want. And then the accusation may go nowhere or millions of people could sign on to it. So it's like this game of Russian roulette and everyone's afraid of each other. So that's what I was trying to get at. How is it that we became afraid of each other to the point where we don't speak up and say what we're thinking? We don't challenge each other's ideas, at least in many parts of the academy anymore. And that's what has made us structurally stupid, the loss of viewpoint diversity. And while I'm, I'm rambling a bit here, I'm sort of trying to give you like seven different ideas in this 8,000 word article. But that's what the Babel metaphor is all about, that social media allowed a small number of people to intimidate a large number of people to such an extent that our basic social institutions don't work anymore. That's a great summary of a complex set of arguments you, you were making in that article. And I think why I was bringing in the rider and the elephant is that we can't understand each other anymore, and, and that can play out in lots of ways. But one of the ways is these tribal divides, especially here in America. As I read your Atlantic article about the deleterious impacts of social media, I started remembering reading The Righteous Mind years before, in which you talk about, if memory serves, that as we can start to understand that we all have our elephants, that can create a kind of empathy with other people's elephants. I see. I see. Yes. Okay. So the crux of my own research, I love to write about other people's research. I love to synthesize scholars and philosophers' research. But to the extent that I've made a contribution myself in empirical psychology, it's from doing research on how morality varies across cultures and coming up with a theory that my colleagues and I call moral foundations theory, where fairness, liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And it's like taste buds on our tongue. We all have the same taste buds, but there are different cuisines around the world. And once you understand that, you can see like, oh, you know, if you're raised in a different culture, you have different likes and dislikes around food. And you understand why Australians might like uh, Vegemite. And if you didn't grow up with it, you're not going to like it. And in the same way, if you're either predisposed to be on the left, because it's like everything else, it's genetically heritable. So if you're predisposed to be on the left, or if you're raised in progressive environments, you're going to have a hyper-developed sense for care and fairness as equality. You're very focused on equality. And if you look at a lot of the social movements on the left, it's about victims and oppression and inequality. And all of those are important topics. And in a sense, the left specializes in finding injustices and trying to right them. But then you're kind of blind to some other things. And if you're on the right, if you have a temperament that's predisposed to be conservative, and that's heritable, and you can tell if someone's going to be conservative, because if their room is very neat, and they've always been very neat and organized, and they're on time to meetings, they're more likely than average to end up on the right. And they value tradition, and they value order, and they have the same taste buds, they certainly can understand care and quality, but they think of fairness more as proportionality. You know, you do the crime, you should do the time. You should clean up after yourself. You should have personal responsibility. You should be loyal to your groups. You should respect legitimate authority. You should treat your body as a temple, not as a playground. So these are a whole range of moral intuitions. And what I came to see, working in India originally, but then working across the political divide in America, 
is that there's a real complementarity between right and left. If you have a progressive impulse and a conservative impulse in a society, then you actually get the best policy, you get the best outcomes. Now, unfortunately, what's happened, and here maybe I can swing around to your question, which is really about empathy, is in a country in which we used to have an active center-left, and they are still the dominant force in the Democratic Party, and we used to have an active center-right, and they are no longer the force in the Republican Party. What social media has done is it has hyper-empowered the extremes, but in an unusual way. If we look at the parties, the Republican Party has become the structurally stupid party because they turned on their moderates. They've kicked them all out. They've persecuted them. They've harassed them, death threats. So most of the moderates have gone from the Republican Party, especially at the congressional level. The Democrats, that's not true. And so people on the left just point to this. They say, you know, look what Donald Trump did. Look what the Senate Republicans did. They're insane. They're terrible. They're evil. We can't have a democracy. And they're right. They're right about all of that. But they can't understand. They can't do the reversal, which is to say, well, what if you were on the right? What would you see? And if you're on the right, what you see is not that the Democratic Party is insane or structurally stupid. What you see is that the cultural left has undergone a similar transformation into structural stupidity. You see that in universities, people are afraid to speak up and challenge the dominant view. You see that in any progressive organization, people are so afraid to dissent on anything. And so if you're on the right, you see you have, I mean, every day you have 50 examples in your inbox of incredible structural stupidity on the left. So my argument is most people are reasonable. Having a balance between center left, center right is a good thing. Both sides have experienced a super empowerment of their furthest wings, but in an asymmetric way that makes it hard to see both sides. But if you can see both sides, then suddenly you realize, whoa, it's not that they're the enemy. It's that the whole system is so messed up that our democracy is going to collapse. Our democracy cannot survive this way. If we keep going the way we're going, we don't have very long to live. And by live, I don't mean we're going to physically die. I just mean to live as a, a democratic republic of the sort that our founders gave us and of the sort we thought we had. So I don't want to be too apocalyptic, but maybe it would help to share that I basically never get angry. I actually just try to understand what the hell's going on. And that gives me, I think, some empathy for everybody. Is that luck of the genetic draw for you, or is that a skill that the rest of us can cultivate? <sighs> um, by disposition, I'm a center-left kind of person. I was always a, you know, I've always voted for Democrats. So I think anyone sort of with a temperament that's sort of center left to center right can do this. What happened to me was I set out to write The Righteous Mind originally to help the Democrats stop losing. This was after George W. Bush had won twice when I thought he shouldn't have. And so I forced myself to be exposed to conservative ideas and writings. I read National Review and I discovered, hey, actually, there are a lot of good ideas there, especially if you read the best people. And I found as a social scientist, like, wow, I'm a much better social scientist if I actually listen to multiple sides of a policy issue. So as a researcher and a social scientist, it took me years to do this, which means that an average person who isn't doing this for a living, it might be hard. But I've taught a lot of courses and I've worked with a lot of students in the space of one semester, like they really get it. It actually doesn't take that long to understand that your fellow countrymen see things differently than you. Because so many of us are good at doing this for other cultures. We can be very tolerant of other cultures. Why can't we be tolerant of our neighbors? And it turns out with just a little work, you can. And so, yeah, I guess, okay, everybody should go out and just read The Righteous Mind. That actually may be enough. And then the other thing is, 
Go to openmindplatform.org. It's a program that Caroline Mel and I created to actually teach people to do this and to, to understand the psychology of why it's hard to do it, but to use some psychological techniques to be better at it. So openmindplatform.org, we designed it for use in organizations, actually. So if you find that your company or your school or your PTA group or anything, if you find that things are tense and there's just a lot of fear or fighting or anger, if everybody does it, you all have a vocabulary in common, you all learn how to get along a lot better, and you'll be much less structurally stupid because you'll be able to have constructive arguments. I wonder if one of the keys here is something you said earlier, which is that we're pretty good at seeing irrationality and hypocrisy in others, but not so good at seeing our own elephants. And just knowing that seems like a great North Star for navigating Babel, to use your terminology. Well, it's a starting point. I mean, basically, what you just said is literally chapter four of the happiness hypothesis. If you collect quotations from around the world, you find a lot of this form. So here's the familiar one. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? So yes, we're really good at finding flaws in other people, and we're really good at defending ourselves from charges that we're the same. Here's a similar quote from Buddha. It's easy to see the faults of others, but difficult to see one's own faults. One shows the faults of others like chaff winnowed in the wind, but one conceals one's own faults as a cunning gambler conceals his dice. So wise people in every human society that has writing are on to exactly what you just said, that we're hypocrites. And in the chapter, I go through why we evolved to be hypocrites. So we evolved to try to win the game of social reputation and prestige. And so we're always trying to make ourselves look good. But here's the paradoxical effect. If you admit your flaws, and you're honest about it, you actually, in the long run, tend to come out ahead. So yeah, understanding that we're all hypocrites, we're all struggling to figure out what's true, it's very difficult to figure out what's true. And I think it's much harder now than it was 10 years ago. So yeah, a little bit of humility about how hard it is to know reality and how hard it is to even know yourself. So yeah, I think that does help. Coming up, Jonathan Haidt on how we can be happier in our work lives a defense of striving, which is often denigrated in the meditation world, and the power of having an accountability partner when you're trying to change your habits. That's coming up after this. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini golf. We recently went to a mini golf uh, themed restaurant in uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini golf at Putt-Putt all the time. Alexander, his buddies, me. And in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the, the most memorable and important part about taking trips. Which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. With over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries, there's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. When it comes to hiring, don't go searching for the one. Just meet your match with Indeed. 
If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How much, if any, optimism do you have that we can achieve the requisite level of empathy and structural sanity to get through this tumultuous period of time intact? In the short term, I'm an incredible pessimist. In the medium term, I'm a pessimist. In the long term, my rider is optimistic. That is, I believe my friend Steve Pinker that in the long run, things are getting better. And people have often thought that their world was going to hell and they've almost always been wrong. The way to reconcile all this, I believe, is to understand that there are cycles in history and they last about 80 years, 80 to 100 years. And a society comes through a crisis, a war, a terrible time typically, and then they build institutions that create something new. This happened with the founding of the country in the 1780s. It happened after the Civil War. It happened after the Depression and World War II. So there are cycles in history when new institutions and norms get built. And then you get greatness for a couple of generations, never four. You don't get four generations. You get two or three. And things decay and things change. And the institutions that were built after the Second World War worked great for a little while, but we can't just keep slowly updating them. There are many theories out there that talk about how every 80 to 100 years, things really break. You get a crisis. And several theories have predicted 2020, 2025 as the peak year of crisis. So Things are going to get a lot worse, I believe. We're going to have a lot more political chaos, political violence, as we had in the 60s and 70s. I don't think that, you know, five years from now, it's not like, oh, boy, wasn't that crazy? Those early 2020s, they were crazy, but man, we're done with that. I don't think we're going to be through this in five years, but eventually we will get through it. And Amazon will always be there for you to get products. Like, it's not like we're going to starve or die. But I think the sense we had of a stable democracy, which was the envy of the world, I think that is gone and we're going to have to rebuild it. That's going to be the great challenge for the next generation is to is to build something anew. I know you teach a course called Work, Wisdom, and Happiness. And so I'm interested in talking a little bit about how we can be happier in one of the most anxiety-producing spheres of life, which is work. And in particular, I'm interested in a case I believe you make in the happiness hypothesis, which is a kind of defense of striving. There is a received wisdom that Happiness cannot be the result of external rewards, but you take that on. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So the Buddhists and the Stoics do generally preach a kind of non-attachment. And they lived in worlds in which they didn't even know what the weather was going to be the next day. You could have a volcano erupting and everyone's dead. Like 
they really couldn't plan on retirement. You know, until the 20th century, nobody could plan on retirement. And so they developed philosophies of non-attachment and of getting distance. And especially the Buddhists had ideas of non-striving. I think the Stoics are, are more comfortable with striving. And so while I was writing the happiness hypothesis, I was very taken with Buddhism as I had been since college. But I began to see that for different societies, there are different philosophies that would be optimal. And Americans are perennially attracted to Buddhism because it's a counterpoint to our more outgoing, aggressive, achieve, do things, discover things, get stronger, get smarter. And so we're often looking over our shoulder and saying, well, isn't there peace and tranquility over there? But that doesn't mean that we should be Buddhists. And I've been active in positive psychology since began in 1999 or so. And it turns out that there are some things that really do make you happier. And it's especially relationships and being embedded in a community. It's having good work that uses your strengths. So it's not correct that, oh, just look within and don't try to change the world. No, the world's never going to conform to what you want. And so if you pin your hopes on making the world be just the way you want, you'll always be disappointed. But at the same time, it is worth striving to get your relationships right, to find work that uses your strengths to arrange your life so you have a sense of control and efficacy over what you do. If you have work that you don't love, that doesn't use your strengths, where you have little control of what happens to you and you've got demands placed on you randomly and you don't have friends at work, like, yeah, you're going to be unhappy. So by the time I finished the book, I embraced a kind of a more Western approach. Like, you know, Buddhism is fascinating and useful, but I think the path to flourishing for most Americans and Western Europeans is going to draw from multiple traditions but it is ultimately going to be for many people to try to make a mark on the world, to strive, to aim high. Just don't get so carried away that you lose perspective and you let the world control your mood. That's where Stoicism in particular, I think, is so helpful. It's interesting because I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist scholar, but I certainly have written a couple of books about meditation and practiced Buddhist meditation quite a bit. And my understanding of the Buddha's life is he did renounce the worldly but spent a lot of time hanging out with merchants and kings. And my understanding of Buddhism is not that you shouldn't strive. It's that you should not be attached to the results. Yeah, there's a line in the Bhagavad Gita. You know, Hinduism, the roots of it have that too. You should be the same in success and failure. But let me ask you, this is a question I asked, I forget which Buddhist scholar I had a conversation with many years ago. And I said, okay, let's, let's talk about attachment, non-attachment. If your wife dies... Is it appropriate to feel pain and loss? He couldn't give me a clear answer. What do you think? So there's no question that if my wife died, I would feel an enormous amount of pain and loss. But is that a Buddhist reaction or is that just a human reaction that's not consistent with what the Buddhist ideal is? So take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt because I pick things up along the way. But the Buddha, if memory serves, lost one of his disciples, Sariputra, I think, and said it was if the moon had fallen from the sky or something to that effect. There's also a great story about a Buddhist master who lost his daughter and was seen by his disciples crying. And they said, I thought, master, you said everything's an illusion. And he said, some illusions are more painful than others. Okay. So as long as there's a recognition of that human response, I mean, if as long as we take it as a general guide, you should be looking at your attachments. And I just think life is richer and better if you have certain kinds of attachment, which will be painful to lose. But 
you can either deal with the grief in ways that resolve it quickly or not. If there are any Buddhist scholars listening to us, they're probably <laughs> holding their hair. No, they're not getting upset. They're actually very tranquil about this. But so yeah, we might move on away from Buddhist scholarship. It's interesting on this issue of striving though, I had a conversation just yesterday with a longtime friend who had a massive positive development in his work life, which resulted in a huge financial windfall. I mean, mind-bending financial windfall. And he said he was no happier the moment that happened than the moment preceding it. And in fact, was perhaps more anxious. And so I, I relate that to you in light of everything we've just discussed to see what it brings up for you. So yeah, that's exactly it, is how closely do you want to hitch your moods to what happens in life? And one school is go for it, embrace life, grab it all, experience everything. Another is no, get some distance, step back, be almost indifferent to what happens. And then a third is how about let's try to maximize the good stuff and minimize the bad stuff. And to that, I'd actually like to add a fourth consideration, which is your age. So, you know, the Buddha lived and then renounced. You know, if my son is 16, if he were to take up Buddhism next year and devote himself to spiritual growth and separate from the world, that would be a tragedy. That would be such a loss. A young person should live. A young person must get his heart broken many times, must experience success and failure. And then later in midlife, maybe you can step back. I was a philosophy major undergrad, so, oh, the unexamined life is not worth living, as Socrates said. But the unlived life is not worth examining. And that's what I came to in the happiness hypothesis. It was a kind of a Western vision of life, but just tempered by the psychological understandings of the Buddhists and Stoics. I think that's the best way to live a life in the West. Again, many people, many lives. I'm a John Stuart Mill liberal. We want a society that makes maximum room for people to construct lives that they want. But actually, you know what? If I could get back to a thread that we had a moment ago, which we didn't really pick up on enough, was this course that I'm teaching at Stern. I teach it at the business school, NYU Stern. And I teach a course, I've taught it since 2014, called Work, Wisdom, and Happiness. But I've actually retooled it in the last year. The theme of the course now is Smarter, Stronger, Happier. And the idea is this. It's actually sort of smarter, stronger, more socially skilled, happier. So far, it's just been for MBA students. You know, they've been out in the world a few years. They're coming back to school. And the idea is, let's start with stronger. How do you get stronger? And the key idea there is anti-fragility. This is the opening chapter of The Coddling of the American Mind. You know, our immune systems are anti-fragile. If you protect them from dirt and germs, then you weaken them. They have to have exposure in order to get strong. Children are the same way. If we protect our kids from negative experiences, from teasing, from minor injuries, then they don't learn how to deal with people or how to deal with the world. So we're all anti-fragile. And Gen Z, people born 1996 and later, have been so overprotected in all the English-speaking countries. It's the same thing in Canada and Britain as it is in America. And so I talk with the students about how we're anti-fragile, how you have to take risks. You have to put yourself out there because that's how you learn. That's how you grow the most. And once we understand growth, how do you get stronger? Well, now we look at how do you get smarter? We naturally look for evidence that we're right, but if you look for evidence that you're wrong, you'll get smarter a lot faster. If you read things that are contrary to your view, if you're on the left, read the smartest people on the right, vice versa. You'll actually get smarter really quickly. And what I find is I write a lot of different things, and I find that if I seek out people who disagree, 
my work gets better faster than if I seek out people who agree. So once you understand how to get stronger, now apply it to getting smarter. And now let's apply that to becoming more sociable because almost everybody wants to be more socially skilled. Very few people feel that they're very socially skilled and aren't satisfied with it. Most people don't feel they have enough close friends, especially young people. They're very isolated. So how do you become more socially skilled? And again, you have to take risks. You have to put yourself out there. You have to deal with a lot of rejection and that will make you stronger. And then the conclusion of the class is if you can make yourself stronger, smarter, and more socially skilled, then you will be more successful at work. And again, this is a, an MBA course we're focused on work. You will be more successful at work. And if you're all those things, including successful at work, you will be happier. So yeah, that's what I've been working on in my teaching over the last year. What are the practices that you prescribe to your students in this course? So I assign the five-minute journal. If you just look it up, five-minute journal, I forget the website name. You know, the physical book is, is very nice. And it just sort of guides you through a morning routine or an evening routine. So that's the first thing. And about half the students end up really liking it and continuing it. Half of them drop it. I don't force them to stick with any habit, but I make them try a few habits over the course of this very short course, just six weeks long. Then I have them read the opening chapter or two of Atomic Habits, which is all about, you know, it's a very behaviorist view of self-change. And you have to set up reinforcements and small steps. And I have them identify by the end of the first class, what is the change you want to make in yourself? And how are you going to do it? And that's what the final paper is about. What did you do? How did you pick this? How did it go? And I don't grade them on whether they were successful. I grade them on whether they write a good psychology paper where they reflected on who they are, on on what we know about self-change, and they picked some methods. It turns out one really powerful practice was having an accountability partner. So they used to each be on their own to do this. But it turns out if you pair them up in the class, and I'm experimenting with whether it should be a friend or a stranger, someone they don't know. But you pair them up with someone. And my suggestion is we meet on Monday nights every week. How about on Thursdays you check in? Now you can adjust that, but on Thursdays you check in. It can be just by text. How's it going? Did you do the thing you said you were going to do? So you have to be accountable to someone midweek. That seems to speed up their progress. Otherwise, it's too easy to make excuses. The rider comes up with, you know, the elephant doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to get up early in the morning and go running, or he doesn't want to put himself out there and take risks. And the rider makes excuses for him. But if you have to face an accountability partner who's going to ask you, so did you do the thing that you promised me you would do? So we use all the tricks that we can think of, the psychological tricks and the social tricks, to help the rider and the elephant work together, ultimately change the elephant is really what it's about. Coming up, Jonathan Haidt on why we need adversity, his theory on the linkage between political correctness and adversity, and advice on how to participate cheerfully in turbulent, tribalized, polarized times. After this. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day. Many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. This is something I've spoken about at length for many years with with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling, working on figuring out what I care most about, what matters most to me, has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. 
I had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com. Very easy to use website, and they've got a terrific selection. I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Last question for me, and this goes to the notion of being stronger. And this is a question you look at in the happiness hypothesis. Is adversity good for us or bad for us? Um, so generally, it's good for us, but it has to be the right kind of adversity at the right time and with the right lessons. Because this is also one of those great truths that you find in almost every culture. It's really amazing. I can actually read you a couple of the quotes. The best known one, of course, is from Nietzsche. You know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. But you find this in... Well, there's a quote from Mencius, when heaven is about to confer a great responsibility on any man, it will exercise his mind with suffering, subject his sinews and bones to hard work, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, we need adversity to grow. Adversity for two, three, four-year-olds, probably not much. Real adversity in early childhood can leave real scars. There's a lot of research on adverse childhood experiences. That can be bad. But facing social adversity, if it doesn't go on too long, if it's not so severe, can often be very strengthening. So in the 1990s, we freaked out. We changed the way we raise kids. It's quite sudden, actually. The amount of time that mothers and fathers began spending with their kids, is, for some reason, it shoots up right around 1995. I can't figure this out. So we start overprotecting our kids a lot in the 1990s into the present day. And this, I believe, is the other major reason why rates of depression, self-harm, suicide, anxiety have doubled for some subsets since 2012. Our teens are in a terrible state, very, very bad mental health. And I believe it's because we vastly overprotected them, deprived them of normal adversity, while at the same time, putting them on social media or giving them phones that they then, beginning around 2012, they all got on social media. And boom, within a year, the girls, the rate of depression is up 50% within a year or, well, two years, 2012 to 2014, 2015. The boys also are not doing well, but the data doesn't allow me to connect the boys' outcomes to social media. But for the girls, the connections are, are pretty clear. Well, if I understand your argument correctly, this coddling led not only to the public health crises around mental health of young people once they go from being coddled to being exposed on social media, but also, if I'm understanding you correctly, to what has been unflatteringly referred to as wokeism or political correctness, because these kids get to college and can't handle opposing views. That's right. And there's an anomaly that's not widely known. It's just discovered a year or two ago, which is that it's especially girls on the left they are the ones who most bear the brunt of this. Girls on the right are not doing nearly as badly. We have this long period from, I was born in 1963 to 2013, it's 50 years in which we made the most incredible progress on every possible social justice issue. The hundred years before I was born, very little progress from 
the Emancipation Proclamation to my birth, 1963, Martin Luther King's speech, 1963. The next 50 years, incredible progress. But for some reason, young women on the left decide in 2013 that everything is and always was racism, sexism, oppression, gender pay gaps. You know, this doesn't have much link to reality, but girls on the left were immersed in a social media environment. Tumblr turns out, I didn't know this when I read the article, Tumblr turns out to be a real petri dish of this concern. So that might explain why it's the girls on the left who become depressed first and most, and to this day. So there's all kinds of twists and turns to this story. It's not a one-factor causation. It's not just the overprotection. It's not just being on social media. And it's not just this set of ideas about oppression and victimology. It's interesting interactions. One other that I just really found in the last few days, I was reading Emil Durkheim, my favorite sociologist, who talks about collective effervescence and communal rituals and this human need to come together physically. And we dance together, we drink together, like cultures all over the world do this. They have rituals that bring the group together. And it's essential that you move together. You have to use your muscles. We're embodied creatures. We have bodies. So as I was reading Durkheim on this and an article that was reviewing Durkheim's work, and I realized, oh my God, the metaverse is the absolute opposite of what Durkheim said we need. When kids are connecting, not even synchronously. Like it's one thing if you're you know, like you and I are talking now, like we have at least some back and forth. If we were together in person, it'd be much better. We'd have much more of a bond, but at least this is synchronous. What the girls are doing is asynchronous. So when all the kids got on their screens all day long, they all got iPhones around 2012, plus or minus a couple of years. When they all moved their social lives onto screens, the boys went for video games and video games are synchronous. So my son would play Fortnite with his friends, and that was at least they're working together to find and kill other groups of boys. And it was great fun, and that's actually very healthy. So multiplayer video games are not bad for kids. They might even be good for them with limits. But what did the girls do? When they got on, they went for Instagram, Tumblr, and Pinterest. They went for the visual platforms, which are asynchronous, performative self-presentation. But what do girls need? What are girls' games all about? Girls more than boys are about connection. So when you look before all this stuff was happening, what do girls do? Patty cake, they have all, all these rhyme games with clapping. Girls do all these things to physically synchronize themselves with other girls. That's part of growing up as a girl. Jump rope. Girls' games are not competitive. They're about bonding. And when everyone moves on to digital platforms, the boys are doing okay. It's kind of more fun. But the girls are now completely starving for communion and connection. They're so lonely. And they're so insecure as they go through puberty alone. So there's a lot of pieces to this story. But the main victims have been girls born after 1995. Jonathan, I really appreciate you coming on. I think you've said a lot of interesting things and a lot of things that will be challenging to our audience, which is actually part of your thesis that we should all be challenging ourselves. We have referenced many of your books and you've referenced at least one of the sort of digital platforms you've created, Open Mind. Is there anything else that's worth mentioning in terms of resources you've put out into the world that people could access? Yes. So... I would suggest starting either at thecoddling.com, which is the website for The Coddling the American Mind, or my main website, which is jonathanheight.com. My last name is H-A-I-D-T. And I've put everything there, especially I have a page on social media. I put all my work on social media is on a single page. You can find everything there. And I would like to end with actually a quote I really love now, because I know sometimes when I talk about democracy and mental health, it's pretty dark. But there's this quote I found from Joseph Campbell. I, I, I hope I can end with here. 
So Joseph Campbell studied mythology in the late 20th century. He was the world's greatest expert on myth, and he wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and he looked at hero stories from around the world. And he had a special on PBS that really moved me when I saw it in the 1990s. But he has this quote. He says, the lesson of the hero is this. How do you live in this crazy, difficult, dangerous world? He said, quote, the lesson is, participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. We cannot cure the world of sorrows, but we can choose to live in joy. The warrior's approach is to say yes to life, yay to it all. And I think we're in one of those cycles. A lot of things are getting worse, at least socially and politically, but it's a temporary cycle and we have to figure out how to live. It could go on five years, it could go on 30 years, we don't know. But I think Joseph Campbell offers us guidance for how to actually live engaged and reasonably happy lives during this period. Amen. Participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. I think that is a pretty solid mantra for these tumultuous times. All right. Well, Dan, pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Jonathan Haidt. Thanks to you for listening. By the way, I have not asked for this in a minute, but if you do have time to go into your podcast player and give us a rating and or a review, that would really help. It only takes a second. Thank you for that. And thanks, finally, to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. Our supervising producer is Marissa Schneiderman, and Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio, and Nick Thorburn of the band Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Wednesday when our guest will be Dolly Chug, who, as mentioned at the top of this show, happens to be a colleague and a frequent, friendly sparring partner of Jonathan Haidt. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us in Pura. 
promised to keep you safe. I killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Kyoto. The Last City is a new scripted audio drop from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.